Today, we're going to start the conversation with Chandrasekhar Kuperi, founder of ANOVA uh, Corporate Services and uh, a general partner at Peaceful Progress Fund and Angel Fund, which is the topic of our discussion today. Chandrasekhar, welcome. Do you like to go by Chandra or Chandrasekhar? Just call me Shekhar. Thank you for having me here, first of all, Shramanna. You know, it's absolute privilege, happiness, you know, being here. My pleasure to have you. So it's it's a, an opportunity for us to get to know each other as well as our audience to know you. So uh, let's start there, actually. Tell us a bit about your background as well as uh, about what you're doing with Peaceful Progress Fund. So I'm an old guy. My professional journey began as early as 1997. So I'm sure some of the entrepreneurs out here know um, would be much, much younger to me. So I have almost two and a half decades of experience. My basic qualification is in finance and accounting. I'm a chartered accountant from India with multiple other professional qualifications, both in finance and management areas. I started my career with ExxonMobil and then I moved to KPMG. And my last stint as an employee was with a UK-based multinational. And this company you know, had uh, consumer brands. They were mainly in the skincare and hair care and it operated more like a private equity. We used to buy brands from Unilever, Procter & Gamble. That's what we did. And Shramana, this is what happened to me. I had a phenomenal experience and journey with them because mm -hmm. I was able to meet uh, some amazing iBankers, private equity funds, venture capitalists, hedge funds. But I think more importantly, even law firms, because that's where I truly understood how do you structure a transaction. But if I have to say, you know, very boldly, also to say how to say no to a transaction. So I think that was a phenomenal journey for me. Did 11 acquisitions and four divestments, and we sold the business to another multinational. And then as I was doing that, somewhere this entrepreneurial bug bit me, and that's how ANOVA was born. So ANOVA effectively started in June 2013. ANOVA is basically an advisory firm. Our focus is in uh, two verticals. One is M&A, and the other is fundraise. We work actively with the MSMEs in India, as well as the startup ecosystem. We help mainly on the equity side and on a need base. Whenever we think hybrid is required, we work even on the debt. ANOVA is sector agnostic, but uh, my you know, sector focus is generally consumer, manufacturing, and you can't leave technology. So technology is the, is the other area you know, where I work. And quickly on Peaceful Progress Fund, that's a fund which uh, we got the SEBI approval in February this year. It's an angel fund, a 50 crore size, and it can go up to 70 crore, that is circa $10 million fund, focusing on technology, consumer, and electric vehicles. All right, so let's um, double-click down on Peaceful Progress Fund and um, tell us a bit more about what pertains to our audience, which is tech-related stuff. So technology, technology-enabled services, e-commerce, there's a lot of consumer brand building going on right in an internet, uh, right now in an internet first mode. So I presume that if you're doing consumer, that's part of your purview. Exactly. So uh, tell us more about where, what your investment thesis is relative to where we play. Sure. So first of all, when we say technology, uh, Shramana, we are keeping it simple. We are keeping it to plain vanilla that we understand. So it is the world of fintech, health tech, ed tech, food tech consumer tech, retail tech, manufacturing tech. And of course, you spoke about the consumer, so therefore also D2C, direct to consumer. 
and definitely you know e-commerce marketplace you know sort of models so the mm -hmm. idea of uh, you know investing in technology is to ensure that the technology is an enabler rather than a pure play so it could be the likes of ai ml deep learning or even sometimes you know augmented reality virtual reality which actually enables the business to perform better that's where our focus is and uh, the fund does co-investment so you know we don't want to take the credit saying that we are the first institutional investors we want to ensure that we co-invest with either other angel platforms or venture capital firms so to the entrepreneurs out here if you have already raised money from an angel platform i mean feel free to approach us because we will definitely want to review your business and ensure that you know, we, are able, we are also able to give you a quality feedback given the experience you know that some of the sponsors you know and lps you know carry out there what size checks do you write so typically it is between 150000 to 400000 but can be slightly higher too so it depends on the startup and the requirement but that's a sweet spot so let's do a few examples of companies that you've invested in within the tech enabled sphere sure sure so let me begin with the the first one it's an edtech company but nothing to do with academics so this is a startup which basically ensures that they are able to help students or professionals connect with the right mentors and all happens via an artificial intelligence and bot and what this business does is it ensures you know that not just the connection happens but also any follow on support is also given by the startup even in terms of a placement or even some sort of a support to even understand the segment better i'll give you an example let's say somebody want to get into uh you know deep learning and they want to understand you know, what is uh, nlp the mentor would not only guide them in terms of getting the basic understanding but also ensure that if they want to get and be part of a startup or a business they will connect you know the student or the professional and this mm -hmm. business has been doing quite well they've got almost 7500 mentors onboarded the uh, the sort of you know user base is more than uh, uh 300000 and they are doing extremely well The and what is, is the my, business model? The business model is basically B2C and B2B2C. So they connect with the customers directly and then monetize, but also they have tie up, you know, with other businesses from where they're able to get the consumers. So it's a SaaS based model. SaaS based model. Yes. I see. And yes. um, okay, let's do. Do you have one in fintech? An example in fintech? Ah, uh, we have just invested in a fintech business, but this is very very interesting, uh, Shramanna. They started as a HR tech. payroll business because they onboarded almost 10000 corporates and therefore they have 400000 uh, uh you know uh, employees or staff you know as part of their system and what they have yeah. just pivoted now is they have bought a neo bank and because they bought the neo bank they are doing two things one is they are able to give uh, uh, you know the earned wage access which is a salary credit which happens in between the month yeah. and slowly they are going to also ensure that they are able to lend you know based on the credentials of the employee and the reason why they want to do that is because they have the database within the system so it becomes so yes. easy for them you know to do the underwriting and then offer the support yeah. so there are a couple of companies uh, that are doing quite well in that sphere uh, earning and pay active in the us absolutely well said shaman absolutely well said in fact the, the earned wage access is something which we initially thought you know it would be difficult you know to monetize but trust me the sort of traction that we are seeing is unbelievable and uh, it's not also too pricey on the employee 
So it becomes you know, even more handy. Yeah, okay. And um, now in these two examples that you gave us, uh, how did you meet these entrepreneurs? Did another investor who was leading the round bring you into the deal? So uh, because they are a co-investment fund, obviously, you know, the deal would come from the platform or, you know, the fund. But then, you know, that doesn't, uh, you know, mean that we will invest because they're introducing. So obviously, you know, we have conversations with the founders. And uh, when I say conversation, what, what essentially we do is uh, either a couple of, uh, you know, the uh, sponsors and the members of IC, we typically, you know, have a conversation. It's a very general chat to understand, you know, what is the sort of motivation for the founder to get on with that business? What is the motivation in terms of ensuring that the founder can build, you know, the team, the scalability? But I think what importantly we are trying to understand is, do they also map the competition? Because one of the aspects that we are very clued on is if the startup entrepreneurs, they respect the competition, that gives us much more confidence because that means that they're going to come up with some economic moat you know, against the competition, or they're going to come up with some differentiation that is going to help them have a little bit of an unfair advantage. So we, we always ensure that you know, we speak to the founders, try to understand you know, what is you know, their uh, uh, ability you know, to scale up, but more importantly, do they really you know, understand the problem and uh, the solution that they have come up with, how well they can execute? Because in many cases, we have seen that every idea is great, every problem you know, that they come up with is outstanding, Probably the solution is also very interesting to hear, but then where we see the difficulty is the execution. And therefore the traction is very important for us. And sometimes you can't explain the traction always in a quantitative manner. And therefore sometimes the qualitative aspect of how you know they sort of even gelling with the customers or the suppliers or the ecosystem is very important. Jacob, what is your strategy vis-a-vis -vis some of the dynamics of the uh, Indian ecosystem right now? There are larger funds like Tiger and SoftBank who've been flushing uh, startups with capital and creating lots of barrier, um, you know, competitive advantage with capital. Uh, are you going to act as a feeder into these kinds of uh, situations? Do you have a different philosophy? How do you parse this particular dynamic? Very interesting question, Shramana. Uh, the, the fund's thesis is very simple. We invest in seed to pre-series A. And if you see the likes of Tiger Global or Sequoia or SoftBank, they obviously you know, are at a much you know, higher rounds, typically series B, series C onwards. And therefore what happens is we are able to attract a lot of startups at an early stage. And uh, we are also able to sometimes offer the support from the LPs to mentor them or even guide them, or even connect, you know, given the network effect that we carry. But I think more importantly, because we are a fund which is co-investing, we also have the ability to do a follow-on round, which may help the entrepreneurs, you know, to, to ensure that the traction is better, so that they can go for a much bigger That's not my question. You didn't understand my question. My sorry, question sorry. is, do you want to act as feeders into these humongous rounds? Because small funds like yours, get diluted heavily as you know the, the the game that the tigers and the soft banks are playing is they're putting in huge amounts of money in the later rounds and um, some of the smaller funds that uh, we have brought in here have said that it's it's not so easy for them to play that game right you can't really do prorata at those levels so so some of them are seeking exit when when let's say a large 
very large series B or series C comes in, the small funds are taking an exit. Or So that's my question is how are you processing this dynamic of very large funding rounds downstream? That's a very simple, Shramana. We, we, we'll look for an exit because obviously the larger funds would not want smaller funds to be there, you know, because of the rights and, you know, everything. So our idea is to, you know, seek an exit at that time. So that's that's the philosophy, you know, that we carry. That's the idea of being at an early stage also. Because clearly, you know, uh, it would be very difficult, you know, to still continue, you know, as a fund and not have certain rights because you will lose out on the liquidation preference too at that point. Exactly. So you lose all the, all, on all the liquidation preferences. That's exactly so my question. The answer is question. very simple. The answer is very simple. We would want to seek an exit and that's what, you know, we would want to do. And that's what typically happens. Um, I'll give you an example. Is that what's happening across the board in, in the Indian small funds? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that is the reason why, you know, a lot of uh, early stage funds, you know, they're rising. You'll be surprised India has got 900 funds and the early stage funds, you know, are also increasing because uh, they feel that, you know, they will be able to get an exit at either a series B or a series C sort of rounds. Sometimes happening yeah. happens even in a series A. Mm, yeah. And then it makes sense. It's kind of you split the business building into two phases. You you take the early stage exactly. with the smaller funds and then everybody exits into as the company gains traction and this game of very large funding rounds starts to uh, kick in gear because there there are you know there are challenges to that very large funding round game right there that exactly. doesn't always work exactly so you you interrupted me but let me finish that because it's very relevant for the entrepreneurs out there what happens in an early stage, Ramana, is that, you know, as you're investing and you have other co-investors too, you have an ability also to put a follow-on round, which is much more easier for the entrepreneurs because they have already had a, you know, sort of interaction with, or rather, you know, some sort of a network has already happened with the existing investors. And that helps them even to improve the traction before they approach the, approach the larger funds, because when they have to go for the larger fund, obviously the thinking is they have to raise a bigger amount. They can't raise a smaller amount because- Yeah, and you need traction to justify that, yeah. But, you know, there's only so much you can do with a $10 million fund that, you know, there's limitations to how many deals you can do and how much follow-on you can do. Severe co-investment. Yeah. Okay, cool. What other trends are you seeing in the Indian startup ecosystem right now that are worth discussing? So I'll focus on consumer because that is the other focus yeah. area of this fund. And we are seeing that there's a lot of product personalization startups that are coming. So there are startups, you know, which ensure that, you know, there are DNA testing kits, which help, you know, to sort of find out what is the requirement of the consumers. And that personalization is becoming quite big. The second that we are looking at is sustainability because there are a lot of uh, startups, you know, which are getting into uh, uh, the sustainable sort of businesses. What I mean by that is, Sometimes, you know, it is also to do with natural, organic, you know, things you know, yeah. which are plant-based, you know, and all that, you know, is becoming recycled, you know, sort of products, all that is becoming quite uh, uh, an interesting business. The other, uh, you know, startup that we're looking at in the consumer space is to do with supplements. Supplements, you know, which are, uh, uh, you know, helping in terms of even uh, augmenting some of the requirements, uh, you know, of consumers on the skincare or hair care. So, mm -hmm. so this is an interesting area, you know, that is happening even from uh, the, the consumer world. And finally, you know, we're also trying to look at certain startups which are helping with the virtual try-on technologies. You know, so, so this this is like the world of, you know, the uh, uh, businesses which can help you 
to have an e-commerce platform, but also give you a feel that can you do a virtual try of the product yeah. so that that gives them the feel of whether it fits properly or whether no, uh, that's the product you know, that they should choose. And um, in the B2C world, of course, the first wave of e-commerce startups we saw were targeting the the affluent population, and then after Reliance Geo came into being, we started seeing the you know the lower end of the Indian consumer being becoming more accessible because they had a device. They were you know you could advertise to them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What where does that stand from your from where you sit? How do you analyze that whole dynamic? It's a very important question, Shamana, because I think many, uh, you know, because I come from a consumer background, you know, I work with a lot of uh, consumer, you know, businesses. I can tell you there's something called the bottom of the pyramid, which is where you actually yes. see there is significant potential. And thanks to what Jio is doing, because the accessibility, you know, for, uh, you know, people to have a smartphone and therefore the ability, you know, to sort of look at, uh, you know, various products and at the prices, you know, that is, that they find, uh, you know, affordable to them is definitely happening. So I think uh, what has what has led you know to uh, growth in terms of startups is they are looking for space in the tier three, tier four you know sort of cities. Earlier focus was mm -hmm. on tier one, tier two. So there are startups which focus on tier three, tier four where they see that the consumer traction is even more significant. Sometimes even the loyalty, even that you know they see there. So the trends that we see is one is the stickiness. Second you know is in terms of uh, you know the ability to ensure that. You know they they are able to uh, use a smartphone and buy the product, but I think more importantly, because it's like a little more close community, you know they are, they are able to refer the products much more easily easily to others, and that increases the buying propensity. What are you seeing? What what are some examples of really good companies that are focused on that segment? So there is a company you know which is into Ayurvedic chocolates. So this is an interesting, and they chose, you know, to sort of launch, you know, in uh, tier three, tier four, rather than a tier one, tier two, because you have the competition from the biggies. And, and yeah. you know, what has happened is that because it's Ayurvedic, number one, the health benefit is easy to convey, but more importantly, even, you know, the way, you know, it is done uh, in a format, you know, that is easy for the tier three, tier four customers to resonate with. What this has done is one is, you know, it has led to the increase in the wallet size the ability you know to offer some of the products you know that the consumer are looking for and therefore that research you know that insight you know happens much more easily but the third thing which has happened is we have realized that there are certain pockets you know where people are having the ability to spend because typically we think you know that the spending potential is not significant in some of this tier 3 tier 4 but it's actually quite the opposite and therefore you know sometimes you know you can even have product ranges where certain premium you know, sort of launches could also happen there to ensure that you know, you're able to meet the customer taste, the customer preference. So, um, and what category though? I, I mean, in a in a wallet that is tighter, you have to hit the priority segments, right? So, I imagine in India, being India, edtech must be on top of that list, yeah. Yeah, because it's the pressure from the parents too. You know, India is India. So as you know, so there's a lot of focus that is given on edtech because, you know, the actual, uh, you know, consumer, okay, and uh, the actual customer, they are different people. For example, the customer is a parent, the consumer is the child. So what happens yeah. is the, the customer is, is has the willingness to pay. And therefore, if the edtech, you know, is able, if the startup is able to entice the consumer, the student, 
then it becomes a big game. So I think we should never get get carried away by the fact that edtech is doing so well. I can tell you there are almost 4,000 edtech startups. 1,500 have already shut the shop. Okay, the others are you know literally you know fight, struggling you know to sort of uh, make their ends meet. Of course, they're active. So it's only the unicorns you know that we get to hear, and then then we get carried away. The likes of Baijus and Vedantu, Upgrad. This is what happens. There are some cute, uh, you know, uh, edtech startups which do not touch the academics. That's why I gave the example of this particular startup where we have invested. They're trying to do, you know, things other than the academics, the K-12, as we typically say. So you're right to say that edtech has got significant, you know, sort of eyeballs, but it depends in terms of what sort of segments that they're playing into, as well as the customer base, because the academics is something which has got extremely crowded. And if it is a me too, they can't survive there. Is there any edtech company that is doing well in the tier three, tier four? There are, uh, you know, uh, at least, you know, a couple of them, you know, which uh, I can think of. And uh, when I say they're doing well, there are two things that we need to understand. One is their ability to increase their user base. And the second is, are they also able to ensure that the customer, you know, life cycle is increased? Because what happens is sometimes, you know, you offer a course, and with that, you know, your, your consumer, you know, stops sort of, you know, attending, you know, to that particular uh, uh, whatever is a package. But then if you're able to give an add-on package, that's where, you know, this uh, becomes even more interesting. Yeah. Well, I think the question really is monetization, right? If you, exactly. you know, Getting a whole lot of free users is not a business. You don't build a business by giving a lot of stuff for free. Exactly. So I think what is important is uh, lowering your CAC, but also ensuring you know that you know you have a customer uh, lifetime value which is uh, uh, you know uh, which is at least you know three four times you know of the CAC, so that you believe you know that there is going to be a profitability at some point of time. Most of them they bleed, they don't make money in the in the early you know sort of years, but definitely because the user base is increasing. If somebody can track how well the user base is increasing, how active they are, what is the churn, but more importantly also ensure you know that the average revenue per user can go up. And I think this becomes significantly a big play. There will be some companies that will come out of that, you know, uh, bottom of the pyramid in India, by, uh, by catering to that bottom of the pyramid wallet in India. Um, I don't think we know yet which ones are going to emerge as the, the big successes for that segment, but I think that's a very important segment, which you know, in the beginning, when India, the India story started to get tra get traction, everybody was talking about billion consumers, billion three consumers. No, the whole story was focused on the tip of the pyramid. It's like skimming from uh, the top, basically. Only after geo that secondary market has opened up, but uh, I don't know that we have quite cracked that yet. You're absolutely right. You know, we have beyond, we have not yet cracked, and probably there are two reasons for that. One is, you know, the ability of the startup also to survive and get the right level of funding. Because yeah. I think the world of venture capital, the world of, you know, funding, you know, has still not evolved to support, uh, you know, startups, you know, which are saying that they can make a difference, you know, in the tier, tier three, tier four, because some, you know, the, the confidence level is still not significant. Of course, it's happening, but not, not to the level that we want. There are funds. Well, that's because the, the, the trajectory, the pace of growth generally is not there, right? The, the VCs are trying to go from zero to 100 million in five to seven years. The tier three, tier four markets are not offering that kind of trajectory yet. Exactly, so it takes time and it takes time because of, you know, 
two reasons. One, one is again, you know, to ensure that the penetration, you know, is done in a way that there is a connect. You know, you just can't do a digital marketing, you know, some sort of a gimmick, you know, to say that no, you can onboard customers. And the second is you also need that level of people, you know, who can, uh, you know, ensure that no, it is the message is passed on, you know, correctly. And probably you also need the vernacular sort of, you know, languaging that that gives them the confidence that the startup can That's support. Yeah, it's the vernacular internet, not the English internet. That is correct. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, Shekhar, very interesting conversation. I'm sure we could go on and on, but let's listen to some of the uh, entrepreneur pitches. Are you staying? Absolutely. Yes, I'm staying. I'm going to you know put myself on mute and off my video, but I would love to you know hear all the talks. Okay, terrific. Thank you for having me, Sharmana. Thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure.